This is the Chattanooga Choo Choo. Hi there, I'm Rachel Geringer, and you're listening to Mountain Talk on WMMT 88.7 FM broadcasting from the Apple Shop in Whitesburg, Kentucky. Today, we continue our month-long series celebrating Black histories, current realities, and futures in the mountains and beyond. Gabrielle Chapman joined me by phone to talk about her work with the Charleston, West Virginia-based CARE Coalition. CARE stands for Call to Action for Racial Equality. We'll end this program with an excerpt of a live discussion between legendary activist Angela Davis and anti-racist author Tim Wise. The excerpt comes from the Making Contact radio program. So I'm Gabrielle Chapman, and I'm the executive director for Call to Action for Racial Equality. It's a statewide organization and a coalition that started out as a volunteer coalition a couple of years ago. And a lot of, well, maybe I'll wait to get into some of that. But as far as I go, I, uh, I moved away at 18 because, of course, everyone in Appalachia is like dying to get out of Appalachia. And I started out at the University of Kentucky, which is not too far, but um, I remember coming across a study abroad poster that was for Semester at Sea, which is a program to travel around the world. And I ended up, fast forward a few years, I ended up doing that program. And after that program, it really shaped my my um, awareness in a way that helped me understand that I wanted to get into social justice work. So after I graduated college, uh, I decided to move back to West Virginia to assume this position that I'm in now. Cool. So, um, well, so where did you go on the semester at sea? Is that what it's called? So, yeah. Um, that program, I was fully funded. I got a scholarship to do it, which I never in a million years would have been able to afford. It was like $30,000 or mm. something ridiculous. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, we went to four continents. So we went to Mexico. We stopped in Hawaii for a day to refuel. We went to Japan, China. We went to Hong Kong, which... Is part of China, but not on mainland. We went to Singapore, Myanmar, Vietnam, India, 
a small country called Mauritius, which is off the coast of Madagascar, South Africa, Namibia, which is neighboring South Africa. And we sailed all the way around the Horn of Africa to Morocco, and we ended in Southampton, United Kingdom. And then beyond that, uh, after the trip, I actually backpacked a little bit in Europe and went to Italy. Spent like two weeks in Italy. But that's that's where we went in a nutshell. That sounds incredible. <laughs> yeah, it was it was it was amazing. Yeah. So how can you talk a little bit more about how that experience um, led you to wanna do more social justice work? Yeah. So so social justice was sort of always in my makeup. So I grew up with a queer mom, and I can remember her on the picket line, like fighting for. Um, same-sex marriage as from I mean I was a kid we'd, we'd, we'd be out and she would drag me to these events and stuff and at the time I, I probably didn't appreciate it but you know now I do because I look back and saw how that really informed my my upbringing so that was always there but when I did the international experience um, or had that experience it it opened my eyes to um, how white supremacy and colonialism have really shaped our planet in a way that is, is just, it's hard to even put into words, really. And that trip, it was amazing, but at the same time, it was emotionally exhausting because every day you're confronted by white supremacy and, and like being a brown person abroad and dealing with that reality. So, you know, on the ship, we had classes, and I was in an international relations course, and I was in a cross-cultural psychology course, the sociology course, and one of the courses, and probably the, the biggest takeaway was the course I took on um, social inequality and how that manifests in a global context. So, you know, it... It really just drove it home, I guess, um, some of those experiences as a black person in parts of Asia. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, this is not, I'm so sometimes I, I'll make like a guide of questions that I'm as a like thing to follow. And then often I'll go way off of that. So I'm already doing that because this is okay, super interesting. Um, I'm wondering how you would define um, white supremacy and if you could talk about the ways in which white supremacy and colonialism sort of work together. Well, that's a large question. It sure <laughs> is. Sorry. And it's um, fine if you don't, <laughs> don't, well, don't want to answer it. I mean, here's the, in the context of traveling abroad, there's really no good way to like define white supremacy. I mean, there is, but it would take us a lot longer to do that. Totally. But I can give you some anecdotal examples of like when I was abroad and how that like hit me in the face. Sure. So, like, I am five eight. I am light skinned I'm a mixed race black woman, and I'm light skinned so I am. I pass as black, but I'm lighter. I'm like a light skinned black person. Mm -hmm. So, and I have big curly hair. That, that's how I wear my hair. And in some of the countries I went to, like Japan or in China, like uh, when you think about standards of beauty from a historic lens, 
white is beautiful. And that's a truth that a lot of people might not understand. But whenever you go abroad, it really was apparent because I was like an animal. Like people would look at me or like they would touch me. They would grab my hair, take pictures. Like they had never seen someone. A, like in Japan, I was a lot taller than like the average person. And then my hair is just, it, it was obvious that I wasn't what was the standard of beauty. It was the complete opposite. Um, and then also moving through the world in different spaces, I noticed depending upon who I was with, uh, if I were with, if I was with like a group of white people, then they would be treated in a way that was as if they were superior. And if I was with a group of all people of color, you know, we were treated as if we were just like normal, regular people. And, and honestly, in some ways it gave us a, a, a multi-dimensional view of the country because if you were if you were in a group of completely people of color, you might get like these inside cultural things. It's kind of like this unspoken like camaraderie that black people in America talk about all the time. If you're the only black person in a room. You're like, hey, what's up? <laughs> <laughs> and that kind of carried over internationally. But um, and then an example would be in Namibia. Um, they were colonized by the Dutch and German Germans, and there are still towns in Namibia that are, like, completely white, and there's a huge income inequality there, even though they have a black government and they've been liberated. Uh, financially, they haven't been liberated in a way. So as a tourist and as a person of color when you travel, that it's kind of you're an anomaly, you're an anomaly in a way because, they don't usually see black Americans coming to Namibia. They see white people, and oftentimes they're European. So I remember going to a restaurant, and I was with a, another woman, and her name um, is Panache, and she's from Zimbabwe, so she's black. And we both walk in, and they would not seat us at the restaurant because we were black. And I was just, like, dumbfounded. I mean... I kept thinking that they were, like, busy and there was, like, a wait. I'm like, well, how long's the wait? <laughs> and they're like, oh, no, I mean, it'll be, like, five hours. And I'm like, what? I'm I'm shocked. So hmm. we walk out of the restaurant, and I'm like, did that just happen? Like, are they, like, saying we can't come here because we're, we're black? And Panache, where she's from Zimbabwe, she understands that dynamic. And she's like, oh, yeah. And then we saw four of our white friends from the ship that – you know, we, our cohort, and we're like, look, we think that we were just discriminated. And they walk in, and he asks for a table for a six. And he comes back out, and he's like, come on. So, like, I mean, it was just amazing to me. I mean, and just the trauma kind of going through that and seeing that in a place like Namibia that, you know, an African country that black folks, couldn't be served in certain areas around town it just was insane hmm. yeah. yeah yeah that's super intense <laughs> right for, right yeah. so that stuff hits you in the face and you just you know you have to kind of learn how to cope because mm -hmm. this is the reality that we live in and it's you know racism smacks you in the face all the time mm-hmm yeah well, yeah, thank you. I, I totally asked you a nearly 
impossible question and you answered it well. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, could you talk about like, what is the CARE Coalition? Um, what's some of the history of it and maybe mm. some of the current work? So I was going to get, get into this a little bit earlier, but the CARE Coalition was a branch out of an organization called Healthy Kids and Families Coalition, which is based out of Charleston, West Virginia. And they do a lot of work across a lot of different groups of people. But, and this is a national problem. In the nonprofit world, it's very white. Um, sometimes I think we're working on diversifying, if you want to call it that, like staff, but on an administrative level, like it's very white. So Healthy Kids and Families is a anti-childhood poverty organization. And, you know, the elephant in the room was if we're going to be addressing childhood poverty, then we have to address white supremacy because, you know, poverty in, in the idea of people being poor in many ways is a symptom of white supremacy. So, like, you could think of it as white supremacy is the disease and poverty and racism is a symptom. So they came together and started to talk about what they could do. And one of the first issues that started to really bubble up was policing, you know, obviously with everything going on in the country that police brutality had been showcased in a way that, you know, white America had never seen before. And we wanted to make sure in West Virginia and in Charleston that we were trying to get it right. So we found that black men in Charleston were two times as likely to be arrested by Charleston Police Department officers. And we wanted to figure out how we could dismantle that dis disparity, essentially. So thus, the CARE Coalition was born. And, and what it, the first really a big initiative was we, we negotiated with the Charleston Police Department, and we basically came up with an eight-point solution or resolution to help alleviate some of those racial arrest disparities in Charleston. And that was, I think, in October of 2016. And that, that when that was happening, it was still a volunteer coalition. So fast forward to maybe last year, they decided that CARE Coalition would become its own nonprofit and it would stand alone. And I applied for that job for the inaugural director position, and I got that position. And it just, I never thought I would move back to Appalachia, to be completely honest. But this is the work that I have dedicated my life to, and I couldn't have written a job description that would have fit me any better. Can Can you talk more about why you didn't think you'd move back to the region? Well, yeah. Um, I, I, this is a conversation that I think a lot of people are having. Um, not just, well, I think the stats are, in, in West Virginia at least, 40 people move away from West Virginia a day. And we're talking our young people are moving away at an exponential rate. So, I mean, it goes without saying there's obviously an issue here uh, as far as retention goes of young people. But, I mean, honestly, one of the issues that, we have to figure out how to address, and the reason why I thought I would never move back is we're lacking a certain capital, like a social capital here, um, or a cultural capital here. 
because Appalachia is very homogenous. So, you know, as a young person or a person moving through their early 20s, it's difficult to say, yeah, I'm going to stay here and stick it out because it's almost like a bad relationship in a way. Um, It's almost abusive in some ways when you think about it. Uh, West Virginia specifically has this way about it that it almost beats you up like Appalachians in, in some ways is like beating you up all the time, just like white supremacy and racism is beating people of color up. And why would you stick it out? Why would you stay in an abusive relationship when you could move to Charlotte or you could move to New York or Boston, you know, places that don't have the same socioeconomic issues? Um, so that was the reason why I never thought I would come back just because, you know, I could make life so much easier on myself and live in a city. Mm, yeah. yeah. Su- super common story throughout the region, right. for sure. Yeah. Right. Um, what is some of the current work that you're doing with the CARE Coalition? Well, so the CARE Coalition right now is in a transitional period. So we currently have an interim board and we're working on creating a permanent board. And I actually just got back from Jackson, Mississippi, which has been called the most radical city in America at the moment. They have a socialist government, uh, yeah, socialist government, and the mayor is freaking cool and doing amazing work. And um, one of the things that I hope that CARE can do is to create somewhat of an umbrella for racial equity issues that are happening in West Virginia and then across Appalachia. And I think that means pulling in partnerships on a national level and supporting black activism here in West Virginia and um, creating a space for um, people of color, LGBTQ people of color, and um, busting open some of these conversations that have been so taboo for so long. Yeah. Um, I, I read somewhere that was it was it once you had come on staff that the first ever Black Lives Matter rally happened in West Virginia? This past yeah, it was in like the first two or three weeks that I was on the payroll. <laughs> <laughs> I had. Um, yeah. So it, basically, we had decided that we wanted to have a rally. And. This work has been. It's very interesting because the system in Appalachia is so rigid in the way that it operates and has operated. So everything we do is such a hurdle. Like, you have no idea. We wanted to have our rally at West Virginia State University, which is a historically black college. And we got backlash from their administration. They they didn't want to, you know, ruffle feathers or, you know, put their neck out there, I guess. And... Then Charlottesville, Virginia happened, which was a kind of a turning point in our rally planning. We wanted to have it like in September or something, but we decided to move it up because a lot of people were showing interest in standing in solidarity with Charlottesville. So, I mean, maybe within a week um, after Charlottesville had happened, we had the rally the following Sunday. And uh, I somehow we pulled maybe three to 400 people from across the state that came down and, you know, 
three weeks on the job. I had no idea that we would be able to have something like that ever happen in West Virginia. I, I tell the story that I was here the year that Michael Brown was murdered. And I remember being so upset and so frustrated about the apathy around his death here in Charleston, West Virginia. And, of course, I'm on fire, you know, as many black activists are. And I decided that, you know, I'm going to go to the Capitol building and I'm going to, like, rally. Maybe 15 people showed up. It was cold, you know, whatever reasons people stayed home. But I never would have thought two to three years later that we could have had a rally with 400 people. Like, you know, there's been such a change in the climate in West Virginia. I wonder how, I don't know, like what have reactions been to that, um, to either to that rally or just kind of to like, as you're, as you're doing this work with care of making connections and kind of like building awareness about the, the racial equity, equity work and organizing that you're hoping to do, like what, what kinds of reactions have you been met with by folks in the state and in the region? So I think one of my biggest apprehensions about coming back to West Virginia and doing the work was, I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm coming back to Trump land and this is not going to be received well, but like, I can't, I have to be unapologetic and, you know, I can't conform to like the conservative rhetoric or, you know, and to be quite honest, I've had way more support than I've had naysayers, which to me, that has blown me away. And one of the things that CARE is talking about doing is um, white allyship training, like training for white people that want to do something about racism, which has probably been the number one thing. I mean, I think West Virginia is 96% white, so it's very homogenous, very white, but there are a lot of great white people that want to help. So I remember... There was an emergency meeting with Mountaineers for Progress, I want to say, in Morgantown. And I had driven up from Charleston. And I remember walking into this room. It probably might, they might have been like 20 people there. And they all got quiet when I like walked in. And I was like, hey, hey, I think that's her. I think that's her. <laughs> I'm like, who? <laughs> like, I didn't know what was going on. I guess they had been waiting for me for a while. And they were like, she's here, she's here. Like, they gave me, like, the whole hour to, like, talk. Um, so there's, there is opportunity here to lead and organize, and, and people want that. And I hope that we can kind of create, like, a white privilege 101, kind of, like, entry-level white privilege course to help people kind of understand the jargon, the language, you know. You know, what is white supremacy? Breaking that down in a way that is understandable, because... There's levels to organizing. There's levels to social justice. I mean, in Appalachia, we have a, we have the soul. Like we know what's right, and we know what we, you know, our hearts tell us what's right. But we don't. We may not have like the, the toolkit or the the language to like organize around it. And I think that we want to create that within care. What have been some of the biggest challenges in trying to do this work so far? There's only one of me, and we need more people. We need more organizers. We need, you know, more people of color that want to step up and want to be a part of the work. Um, 
like we need 50 people doing what I'm doing. And I'm, I'm the only one that I know of doing like statewide coalition building. I think that just having that representation and having the platform and giving that platform to young black and brown people has been probably the hardest part. Mm -hmm. And I would say on a personal note, community, um, because this work requires a lot of self-care, it's emotionally draining, and it's important to be upfront about that and talk about that, but it's also hard, really, to find a community that um, you feel comfortable within. Yeah. Um, so how, how do you sort of keep going through that isolation? Like, what, what are the things that drive you to keep doing it? Well, kind of circling back to the idea of building this network, I think it's important to stay engaged with the national conversation around racial equity and to build par- literally not just partnerships, partnerships, but literal relationships with other organizers that are in the trenches, in the work, doing similar work. So if you had a really awful day and someone has microaggressed you or something of that nature, you're able to call someone and like commiserate, like, oh my goodness, like this happened to me today, and they all understand what that what that might feel like. So, I think building that net- network is really the way to keep it sustainable for anyone. <laughs> yeah, have you like who are some of the folks um, either regionally or nationally? whether that's individuals or organizations that you've been super excited to meet and to, and to be building those partnerships with? Well, currently, one of my most exciting partnerships is with the ACLU of West Virginia. We have Joseph Cohen. He's the executive director of the ACLU of West Virginia, and he's on our board. So he helps with legal stuff. And, just, you know, if I have a question about legal things, he can always answer, back me up. Or he tells me about things going on that he knows about that he might, he thinks that I might want to be a part of. We also have the American Friends Service Committee as a partner, and they do a lot of criminal justice reform. And actually, today we had our criminal justice lobby day at the Capitol, the legislature. Um, we have the Coalition Against Domestic Violence. They are integral to our work. Um, trying to think who else. We have Refresh Appalachia. They are part of Coalfield Development, uh, working on healthy food and healthy living. Um, we don't talk a lot about it, but food food justice is important to racial equity work, and it's a, a facet of racial justice that we want to explore as we go, as we move forward. Um, yeah, there's a few of the really important relationships that we have. That's awesome. Oh, one more that I, I hope see happen. Uh, it's still in the works, but we may be partnering with the Highlander Center and getting an Appalachian Transition Fellow, which I'm like over the moon about. That'd be super exciting. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Um, well, and especially like Highlander has a really rich history of, of organizing right. in the region, right? And around, across, across issues, but definitely some racial justice work has come out of there. Yeah, we're we're hoping that they could maybe be a way that we find support through the work since they've kind of paved the way in many ways. Yeah, that's exciting. 
Yeah. Um, like, what do you think for you in, in this work through care? Like, what is kind of what, like, what are examples of success or what does success look like, um, through work that's pretty like, you know, overwhelming <laughs> also, um, and like daunting, but also like systemic. So how do you even like, uh, measure success? It's a difficult question. It's hard. So here's an example. Um, when you think about racial equity work, uh, kind of going back to the idea of relationships and partnerships, it's more than just business. You know, it's more than just partnerships and partnering, and it's more than just this nonprofit jargon that we throw around. This is about people. Like, it's about real life. And I don't want to get off topic, but it's okay. <laughs> success can mean a lot of different things, really, because, for instance, things that are tangible, like we, we help push legislation, legislation for second chance employment in West Virginia. So that looks like someone we originally had proposed after someone had served their time that in five years they could file for an appeal to have their felony, if they were a nonviolent felon reduced to a misdemeanor. So basically, similar legislation would look like ban the box, maybe in like New York or Maryland. So we push that, and that's very tangible. So like affecting people systemically, they can, you know, find gainful employment. Great. But also success could look like something that's more abstract, like um, there's a new concept that we talk about in organizing circles about called healing justice which it's a little bit more difficult to grasp because oftentimes we are reactionary in how we make solutions about things. So something bad has to happen for us to come up with a solution, and that's reactionary. Healing justice is opposite, proactive. So it's teaching people to be comfortable in their bodies, teaching them to feel empowered, teaching them to feel confident or have self-esteem because oftentimes oppression is hidden and it's hard to explain and it's hard to peel back the onion to understand how oppression affects people. But we all know that in Appalachia, we all are oppressed in a way. So healing justice is, is somewhat like recovery. How do you recover from a broken economy and how do you recover from a coal industry that is extracted from our earth? Like how do we recover from these things? How do we recover from slavery? So, um, and you might, that's very incremental. So, and it's hard to measure. I guess I'm curious who are some of like your personal heroes in, in this kind of work? Um, whether they're people that you know and have met or people you've read about or learned about. Let's see. I have some heroes and I would say Audre Lorde is a hero um, fantastic writer, um, queer person of color that is spot on with some of her work. I actually got tickets to go see Angela Davis and she's spectacular. Um, I remember watching 13th, which is a documentary on Netflix by Ava DuVernay. And Angela Davis, when she was maybe my age, had been arrested and 
and um, she didn't want a public defender. She wanted to represent herself. And I was like, that is badass. Like, she's <laughs> representing herself in court. And she just is so amazing. And now she, I think she's a professor in the UC system in California. Um, and then my favorite, like, actress right now is Tracy Ellis Ross on Blackish. She's always so spot on and like I want to be her when I grow up. And her personality is just so quirky and weird and awkward. And I feel like that's me. <laughs> so I, she's been great to watch over the last couple of years. <laughs> that's awesome. Can I yeah. ask, um, how old are you? You you mentioned that you took this job straight out of college that you that you got yeah. offered the job before you'd graduated. I am twenty five. I turned twenty five in September. So I actually took the job when I was twenty four. And uh I'm 25 now. That's awesome. That's that. Yeah. Um, how does it feel to be like leading a statewide <laughs> racial equity coalition in a state that's never had that <laughs> as a 25 year old or just in general right. as anybody? <laughs> right. Um, well, you know, I was telling a friend the other day, like I got an email. And, and what's really cool about West Virginia is like there's such a black hole. Of, like, I don't know how to explain it. Um, the opportunities are endless. You can do anything you want to do here. And, yeah, so I was telling someone, I had gotten an email from West Virginia University's College of Law, and they had invited me to come be on a panel to talk about um, freedom of speech. And that's coming up. I don't have the date right in front of me, but I think it's in March. And I'm looking at the panelists, and everyone's like a doc, doctor, whatever, doctor, whatever, uh, lawyer, like, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm the only person on here without letters behind their name. Like, this is insane to me. <laughs> uh, I'm like, what, what What makes me qualified to be able to, like, have these conversations? So it, it's been humbling, to be honest. Uh, and also, like, I'm, I'm the youngest person in the room in my board meeting, and I'm leading the organization, which is kind of strange. You're like, whoa. Um. And another part of it, there's such a generational divide in the area I'm in right now, um, even within the black community specifically. So I'm a part of the NAACP of Charleston, and I'm the health committee chair. And I, I think I'm, I think most people are over 65 in the room. I'm always the youngest person in the room. But, you know... I just hope to inspire other young people to get involved because they're very, we need them right now. Yeah. Well, and nationally, I think a lot of the, the more recent sort of movements um, around Black Lives Matter, around sort of police shootings, there's been, there's just been really visible youth leadership, right? Like right. across the country. Um, right. I wonder if you have thoughts on sort of like the importance of youth leadership in movements. So I might get myself in trouble here. <laughs> um, back whenever the election season was happening, I was a Bernie supporter. Um, and I was like Bernie or bust for a long time. I was like, I am not voting for Hillary Clinton. Like it's Bernie or nothing. And I was like dug in on that because I feel like the millennials, we have a perspective and I think it's important that we look at generations in a, in a, from the context or the contextual point of view. So my roommates were 40, in their 40s, and they 
went, grew up through the their feminism wave. So like Hillary Clinton was like the end all be all to them. They're like, oh my gosh, Hillary, you know, Hillary or else. And I'm like, no, Bernie. And for me, I'm like, feminism, it's not about her being a woman. It's about the, the policies that she's going to put in place. So like, to tr- me, true feminism is when we vote for a woman because of her ideas, not because she's a woman. And for, you know, the generation ahead of me, you know, I, I do believe they were like, no, let's vote for Hillary because she's a woman. And um, I think it's important that the young people are involved because, you know, in some ways we're less jaded and our ideas are more abstract and more out in the clouds. But that's what we need because as older people get older, you know, you become set in your ways and, you know, progress. I feel like has always come from the young people. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. Um, cool. I So my sort of the last question that I have had planned um, is about what are some ways that folks can get involved with the Care Coalition. But before we get there, I'm curious if there's things – um, that you were wanting to talk about or thinking about um, in advance of this call that that we should visit? Or, like, what did I not ask you that we should talk about? Mm-hmm. Well, well, I'm going to just take a wild guess and think, I guess, that probably most of the listeners are white people, um, just demographically. Yeah, and... that's probably definitely true for our listening area, for sure. Okay, so... If you're a person that's white and, and you want to get involved, um, I think it's important to utilize Google. Like, the Internet is your friend. Like, you can find really great articles about white privilege, what that means, equity. If there are terms that you're not sure about, always check online. Because I think that people of color, black folks, we always get bogged down sometimes by, like, white people saying, hey, can you explain this? You know, can you teach me about slavery? Can you teach me about this or that? And for me, I'm fine with that because I'm I'm being paid to do that. You know, that's part of my job. But, you know, most people aren't getting paid to teach you about their emotional suffering or, like, a historical event that has caused so much trauma in someone's life, generational trauma. So as as much as you can, I'd say that um, utilizing... Google and searching stuff, reading, you know, the new Jim Crow with Michelle Alexander, the great read. If you want to learn more about mass incarceration and criminal justice um, and in a way that it's it kind of the new slavery and uh, yeah, I think that kind of is one of the things I wanted to talk about. That's great. Yeah. Do you have other, um, books that you love that you think are or recommend that you recommend yeah um so the new jim crow uh ta-nehisi Coates, between the world and me is has been a hot book lately 13th again the documentary with ava duvernay that's on netflix and if you're not a reader it really is a great film to watch uh i would say I Am Not Your Negro, the James Baldwin film is good, but I would 
would say that don't forget that he was a queer man of color and they kind of had some erasure about that in the film throw that out there um well i think those are some of the top reads that i i would recommend awesome thank you for audrey lord i always love her yeah um well so what are some ways that folks um probably mostly in west virginia i'm assuming um but could get involved with care and the work that you're doing well you can follow us on facebook you can look us up call to action for racial equality and also you could follow the black lives matter west virginia page we are always updating posting stuff on there um one thing that is always helpful are donations, and if you don't think you can do anything else, you can donate money, and that would be fantastic because currently, as it stands, I'm a staff of one, and care, we're all over the state. I'm traveling. I am working my butt off, and we would love to hire another person to take on some of this work to kind of spread that out. So that's another way you can you can help out. Currently, you could donate to West Virginia Healthy Kids and Families Coalition. They um, handle all of our money right now. Great. And and yeah. where can people find out more about y'all online? So Facebook is the best place. Okay. Call to action for racial equality. Awesome. Great. Page. Yeah. Again, we're, we're working on all of, we're transitioning into our own entity. So we're working on a website and we're rebranding, creating a logo. You know, I'm a marketer. I'm a social media person. I'm a spokesperson. Yeah. I'm a lobbyist. Not really. I'm not supposed to be doing that. But like. <laughs> You're doing it all yeah. right now. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a lot. It is completely a lot. So. Yeah. If you can support financially, um, add us on Facebook. Yeah. And just give me a shout. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for for making time to, to chat with me and talk about the work y'all are doing. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. It's exciting. listening to Mountain Talk on WMMT 88.7 FM in Whitesburg, Kentucky. We just heard an interview with Gabrielle Chapman, the director of Call to Action for Racial Equality in Charleston, West Virginia. Next up, we'll hear an excerpt of a moderated discussion between Angela Davis and Tim Wise. 
Davis is an activist, author, and thinker who has been organizing in radical social justice movements since the 1960s. Tim Wise is the author of the book White Like Me, Reflections on Race from a Privileged Son. Their full conversation, moderated by Rose Aguilar, originally aired on Making Contact. Uh, you both speak of the relationship between the issues. Is there real hope for dealing with racism, classism, and sexism under capitalism? How can we do this under a capitalist system? From a community college teacher, how do we encourage the younger generation to think critically about capitalism? I would answer that question in two different ways. I would say uh, that uh, ultimately, no, it is not possible to en envision a society uh, without uh, economic exploitation, without racism, without sexism, homophobia. No, it's not possible ultimately to envision a society that is free of all of those uh, uh, horrors as long as that society is based on profit and not people. Mm -hmm. right. Right. And as long as we value others and value what we have in our lives in terms of money, and it's really quite incredible that virtually everything has been transformed into a commodity, or at least we think of it. Uh, we think of everything in, in, in terms of the commodity. We think of education as a commodity. We think of healthcare as a commodity in terms of how much it costs. And until we can um, bring ourselves to imagine in different terms, uh, I don't think it's going to be possible to, to get rid of uh, uh, those you know, modes of oppression that thrive on capitalism. And capitalism thrives on them. Now, this isn't to say that all we have to do is get rid of capitalism as, as if it were possible. I know there are those who go out and say, OK, uh, we have to like smash the whole system. Uh, because as long as the capitalist system continues to exist, we certainly uh, can't uh, get rid of racism. But I think we do both at the same time. Uh, we, we engage in, in, in those struggles in such a way that uh, allows people to educate themselves about the larger context, about the overarching problem. 
from people who want to know more about how you both deal with your feelings, frustration, anger. Um, how do you stay hopeful throughout all of this? How would I answer that question? Well, I, you've um, evoked um, Jimmy Baldwin, and I'm going to uh, evoke um, Antonio Gramsci, uh, who, um, as many of you know, insisted on a kind of pessimism of the intellect, but optimism of the will. So when we can combine that pessimism of the intellect with optimism of the will, perhaps we recognize um, that, um, that whatever we are struggling for, we will never see a complete victory. And you know, as, as um, I have grown older, I've, I've come to try to you know, formulate what uh, our goals are in terms that are more fluid. Uh, you know, recognizing that freedom uh, meant one thing for me at a certain point in my history, our history, for freedom meant one thing for us. Uh, uh, as a matter of fact, you know, I constantly point out that I remember when I was involved in the Black Liberation Movement, and freedom was freedom for the black man. That's what we said. But how, how much more interesting and how much more complicated has our notion of freedom become? in the process of struggling for freedom for the black man. Because it was supposed to include all of us, right? And then we began to think about gender. Um, then we had to think more broadly. Um, and I think if, 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 if someone who was um, alive at that time, uh, learned then what issues we would link to the struggle for freedom today, they would just be absolutely amazed. They wouldn't know what to think. And as I was saying earlier, I think that we won't know, we wouldn't know what to think if somebody uh, comes to us from, say, 2050 and with a report on you know, the state of the struggle for freedom in 2050. There are gonna be issues that we cannot even begin to imagine now. And so I'm actually very um, satisfied that we have done what we have done because we have won victories. Life is better for more people, uh, even though uh, there are 2.3 million people behind bars. Uh, but we have, we have won some important victories. Uh, we've learned how to um, communicate differently. We've developed different vocabularies. We've learned our imagination is uh, much richer than it used to be. Uh, there are more people of color uh, on college campuses, even though there should be um, many, many, many more. So I think we have to learn how to um, acknowledge what we have achieved 
and give ourselves the credit for doing that. It happened as a result of the struggles of ordinary people all over this country. And then to imagine that these will continue and that we will go places uh, uh, that we cannot even imagine today. What is your vision for the world that you want to create? I want us to be able to um, think of each other in terms that don't replicate the legal structures, the ideological structures. Uh, you know, as, as abolitionists, uh, we point out that, we, that, that if we really do want to abolish imprisonment as the dominant mode of punishment, we have to learn how to engage in um, abolitionist um, um, uh, thought and abolitionist uh, ideas in the, the present. You know, so that if we, if we recognize the, the so-called justice system as a system that is uh, based on uh, a retribution and revenge, we can't replicate that in our daily lives when we, t we, we impulsively um, um, imagine uh, when someone does some harm to us that we're gonna get back at them. Because this is what we're trying to abolish. And so how do we begin that process right now in, in, on this micro level? How can we cultivate that sense of, of, of being uh, within communities and not isolated individuals? As isolated individuals, we will always be powerless. We will never have the means with which to even imagine justice in the future. But as communities, uh, we can achieve anything. <laughs> Listen to the lambs all are crying. Listen to the lambs all are crying. Listen to the lambs all are crying. I want to go to heaven when I die. Come on, sister, with your ups and downs. want to go to heaven cry. I want to go to heaven when I die. Oh, listen to the lambs all are crying. Listen to the lambs all are crying. Listen to the lambs all are crying.
the lambs all are crying listen to the lambs all are crying listen to the lambs all are crying i wanna go to heaven when i die That's it for this episode of Mountain Talk, featuring an interview with Gabrielle Chapman of Call to Action for Racial Equality in Charleston, West Virginia, and an excerpt of a discussion between Angela Davis and Tim Wise on privatization, capitalism, and hope. You can find their full conversation on the Making Contact radio program website, www.radioproject.org. Music on this program comes from the June Apple Compilation albums, featuring music from Apple Shop's annual Seed Time on the Cumberland Festival. First, we heard the Chattanooga Choo Choo and Crow Jane by Etta Baker. The song you've just heard is a recording of Listen to the Lambs by Ethel Caffey Austin, who's been called West Virginia's First Lady of Gospel Music. If you'd like to hear this or previous episodes of Mountain Talk again, you can find them on our website, www.wmmt.org or download them wherever you get your podcasts. I've been your host, Rachel Geringer, and from all of us at WMMT, thanks for listening to Real People Radio.